Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The idea that governments, rather than creating debt, can create as much money as they see fit to invest in the economy and to create jobs, that's all fine, but does it work in the international sense when you deal with money that's not from your country and when you are not in America and your currency is not the world's reserve currency? Today we ask the question, is modern monetary theory, which is what this is all about, too closed to survive? Hello, I'm Phil Dobby. That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Now, we have touched on modern monetary theory a few times, but we're going to spend a bit more time on it today, and in particular, how it's influenced by foreign trade and foreign currency. So let's start, Steve. Let's just a, a quick recap on what modern monetary theory, or MMT, is. The argument is that government spending shouldn't be related uh, to income from taxation, that governments can create money. If they issue bonds through their central bank, you know, for whatever the country needs, motorways, health, education, whatever it is, so long as they're buying things in their currency. But I mean, that happens if you live in a closed system because the government's creating their money. They don't need tax- taxation, uh, except, of course, if they create too much money, that could create runaway inflation. So you stop, you know, you don't create too much when you get to full employment. And I guess then for many people, that is the aim, isn't it, of modern monetary theory and for government policy. If you don't have, uh, you aim for full employment. Um, and if you don't have full employment, then that is because the government is restricting the supply of money, and that is that that is the cause of it. Is that have I summarised all that work quite well in about one minute? <laughs> Reasonably, I mean, this is and this is uh, the fundamental uh, appeal of, of uh, MMT uh, is that it's first of all looking at the account, the monetary side of the economy. It's an accurate statement of the accounting realities of how money is created, and. Uh, and that, that is the basic you know, double entry bookkeeping uh, is, a, is a fundamental part of that vision. So mm. if, you, if you look at uh, the, the government say, as a money creator and, that, and it's one of the organisations apart from banks which can actually create money, uh, both firstly by having a spending exceeding uh, taxation and secondly by that being backed by the central bank buying more bonds than it sells, uh, which then creates part of that, converts part of that deficit into new money. Uh, then, yes, if you have a lack of money in the economy, you can create it by government increasing its spending. And, so, and this goes back, Keynes really uh, was the first to allude to this, wasn't he, in the treaties on money. And they, you know, but then it's been picked up. Bill Mitchell, I guess, at the University of Newcastle in Australia, he's the guy who coined the phrase modern monetary theory. And, uh, he and his brigade have, have have given it life, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's it actually, if you want to go back in the history, it goes back to people like Aberlerner. Uh, I've forgotten his first name, but Eccles, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve during the Second World War and the early part of the post-war period. Uh, they were the ones who began to, who began to realise, largely through America's uh, practice during the great the Second World War, uh, it was that it wasn't a lack of money that constrained output. It was a lack of resources being either created or employed that existed at the time. And with the, 
with a large scale of government spending, you could actually mobilise those resources. And coming back to it, the, the actual financing of it ended up being one of the easiest parts because uh, the, the simplest way to do it is to say that the, the government is the only institution in society that owns its own bank. Uh, and when that bank issues uh, its its liabilities, which could be money, you know, physical cash or putting money in people's bank accounts, and you transfer it to somebody else, that person accepts that transfer in full um, settlement of the debt you have, uh, and and therefore they, what is happening is the, the government's promises to pay are accepted accepted as the means of payment between third parties. And if you therefore have a government producing not enough promises to pay, then you can actually end up having unemployed resources just because the government hasn't created enough money. But it's, and, a, it's a very difficult argument, isn't it, to, uh, to, to hit people with, you know, because it goes against conventional thinking that, you know, we, government's tax, they get the money in and then they spend that money. And people might accept that, well, OK, you can, you can make a loss, you can have a deficit when the economy's down because we know you're getting less money in and you need to spend more uh, outwardly to try and boost the economy. But the idea you might do that on, a, on an ongoing basis, most people would just say, well, this is just an excuse for reckless spending by the government, the idea that taxation is meaningless, that it's there just to control inflation or to manage the distribution of income, uh, it doesn't actually impact how, how government spends. People will just go, well, you know, what's the controls on government in that case? They can just go mad with money. Yeah, and that's often the argument. You, you get MMT, therefore, Zimbabwe, and mm. you find yourself trapped in a discussion about cases of hyperinflation, yeah. uh, which have almost, well, I think universally occurred when there's been a collapse in physical resources to begin with. And MMT does does talk very cogently about that. It's only hyperinflation is something that I haven't studied myself. Uh, I've got my, my my opinion of it um, based on what I know roughly about the Weimar period in in Germany, but by nowhere near enough to actually make the sort of commentary I like to make. But yes, that's what's happened. They get this uh, the MMT therefore Zimbabwe. Now, what the MMT uh, group argue back is that we are describing the actual mechanics of the monetary system. Mm. You might not like it, but these are the mechanics. And one of those mechanics is that if the government spends more than it taxes, if G is a greater than T, uh, then that literally turns up as part of the actual definition of GDP. And when people are saying T should be greater than G uh, because they want to pay down the level of government debt relative to GDP, by trying to get tax being greater than government, they're actually re- not just reducing the, the numerator of that ratio, they're reducing the denominator as well. Um, so these attempts to uh, reduce government debt to GDP ratio by the government taxing more than it spends actually ends up being potentially counterproductive on the ratio in the first place because the numerator can fall uh, more than the more than the, well the numerator falls precisely as much as your uh, denominator falls as much as the numerator. I mean. Sometimes I get my bloody words mixed. Maybe I'm in Amsterdam too often. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's a bit early you, in the morning to have been smoking stuff. Your, 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 your divisor uh, is reduced as much as what you're trying to what you're trying to reduce on the top of the, the vision sign. Boy, I have been here too long, haven't I? Um, and that this is trying to keep up with your voice, mate. It's, I blame you, basically. You talk too quickly, which is something I've never said to anybody else. So that's, that's really quite a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> um and 
what actually can happen is the circulation of money can slow down. And so what actually happens is by trying to cut government spending in the belief you're trying to reduce that debt, government debt to GDP ratio, by cutting government spending, you actually directly cut GDP as well. Mm. And then also that can have secondary effects on the people finding there's less money around, try to hoard the money they do have, spend it more slowly. So your actual GDP in terms of expenditure on consumption investment can fall as well. Yeah. So the, the argument on that front from, from modern monetary theory is that the attempt to run a government surplus could be counterproductive just in terms of standard economic theory. But more importantly, what they argue is that if the government runs a surplus, then by, the, by definition, the private sector runs a deficit. Yeah. And this is, this is where the... Uh, having to think in terms of at the aggregate level, uh, different to the individual level, because at the individual level, if you try to spend less than you earn, you can save money. You can increase the amount of money in your bank account. But if we all try to save more than we earn, that is impossible because your expenditure is somebody else's income. So if you try to spend less, you are reducing somebody else's income and there is no savings going on. There's... Uh, the accurate level of savings is zero. But isn't that argued the other way by the more neoclassical school that, uh, you know, aggregate um, does count, therefore if the government is spending less money, then the private sector will spend more because they're not getting crowded out by the government? That's the crowding, yeah, that's the classic crowding out argument, which is the perspective neoclassicals take on this. And the person most responsible for this, or not, not, not most responsible, who pushed it the most is Robert Barrow, who gave us the idea of what he called Ricardian equivalence. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I mean, I've got to, you've got to just, you know, pardon me, tapping away on the computer over here, but I've got to pull that particular piece of garbage up because um, Barrow, uh, Barrow's starting argument was that uh, if the government spends more than it taxes now, then in the future it must um, uh, tax more than it spends. So we all being rational consumers, we know this, and therefore if the government spends more, we will spend less, and one will offset the other, and he calls that a Ricardian equivalence. Now, uh, even neoclassicals would come back to Barrow and say, uh, Bobby, uh, this sort of assumes that, you know that you're going to be paying taxes in your lifetime. Uh, what if the case of the taxes are going to be paid after you die? Then you might not rationally mm. respond to the uh, government's deficit now by running a larger surplus yourself to save money to pay the taxes in future. Yeah. And so here's, here's a direct quote from dear Bobby, Bobby, Bobby Barrow. So we're going to die. So we're going to die owing nothing. In other words, we will have. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, and and and, and you know, I read this stuff, and this is why I say you've got to go back and read the originals and know where the garbage comes from. Finite horizons and related issues. Page forty of the Journal of Economic Perspectives. I think it's nineteen eighty four. Uh, 89, pardon me, where Ricardian equivalence was defended by Robert Barrow. A finite horizon, in other words, you know you're going to die in, I'd give myself 30 years, let's say, okay, mm. and I'm going to die in 30 years. If I think the tax is levied in 40 or 50 years, I'm not going to spend less because of government, even if I'm a rational neoclassical consumer. A finite horizon seems to generate the standard result that a budget deficit reduce, reduces desired national saving. The argument works, however, only if the typical person feels better off when the government shifts the tax burden to his or her descendants. The argument fails if the typical person is already giving to his or her children out of altruism. Mm -hmm. 
Who would do that? The main idea is that a network of interest, and this is when he goes with this argument. So notice the neoclassicals and always talk about self-interest and now talking about altruism. Yeah. Nice shift to go through. The main idea is that a network of intergenerational transfers makes the typical person a part of an extended family that goes on indefinitely. In this setting, households capitalise the entire array of expected future taxes and thereby plan effectively with an infinite horizon. So when you go shopping at Sainsbury's, you're considering what your descendant in the year 3000 will be doing before you decide whether you buy that uh, lollipop or not. Always. Oh, yeah. give me a break. Yeah. So <laughs> look, okay. So, and, 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 I'm sitting around guys and within, you know, and, and, and anybody submitted this as an, as an essay to me as a student, I'd be sending around a guys in white jackets, take them off to a padded cell. Um, but this actually gets past referees and becomes part of the so-called wisdom of neoclassical economics. Okay, so we have gone off at a bit of a tangent, but look, because because what I wanted to talk about was where modern monetary theory sits when we start talking about foreign trade, because if you take that, you know, everything we've talked about so far has been almost like a closed system. You know, there's government money, then there's the private sector, but we're an island with with on our own for all of that to work. But, you know, the modern monetary theorists have thought about that. So this is so Bill Mitchell has got uh, this view on foreign trade, which is a bit strange, which is if I buy from a foreign country, then we would have goods that we would not otherwise have. If we sell goods, that's something we could have consumed ourselves. So his theory is it's good to buy, not to sell. So a balance of trade deficit is a good thing. Imports are a benefit. Exports are a cost. Hello? Yes, that's my reaction as well. And Bill knows this. Uh, Let me quote his exact quote, actually. I've got it here. Exports, really, yeah. exports mean that we have to give something real to foreigners that we could use ourselves. That is obviously an opportunity cost. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, keep on but, going. You know, but you, well, let's no. I, I haven't got the rest of the quote. But I mean, I'm I just, have, lo- I'm just looking, I'm just looking at that and saying, okay, you carry on, you pick up the rest of it. But I was just going to say from that that opportunity cost. But I mean, we get paid in foreign currencies, which means we can buy something else. So how is that an opportunity cost? Isn't that it's, it's ignoring money in this whole process, isn't it? It's it's not an opportunity cost in the sense we were discussing earlier, mm. unless your economy is fully employed, absolutely all resources are being used, and therefore sending something overseas means something you would have consumed domestically doesn't. Uh, doesn't get consumed domestically or used domestically. If instead you've got spare capacity, which is the rule for capitalist economies and capitalist firms in general, uh, then if you have an export, you produce something you wouldn't otherwise produce except for the export. And to me, this is a contradictory element in in modern monetary theory. The arguments they make about when they they talk about, um, and it's even contradictory to the idea of sectoral balances, which also is something which just leaves me shaking my head. Um, If you look at... um, the arguments on on the on the uh, the make of the domestic economy, governments sector deficit means gov- private sector surplus, which is good. The reverse government sector surplus means private sector deficit, which is bad. Completely agree. I can add some various attenuations there, but those are the concepts I agree with. Stuff on international trade starts from opportunity cost. And that is just nonsense, mm. uh, because opportunity cost applies in the in the in the, un- the non-existent situation, where to produce something domestically or to consume something, it's any for export means less consumption domestically, meaning you've got to have fully employed resources. We don't. So at that level alone, I I throw the initial argument out the window, and. Uh, 
I mean, to me, this is again to quote Bill Mitchell on this front. First, there was a denial that exports are a cost and imports are a benefit. That should be undeniable. No, it is not. Uh, this is that is that is undeniable only in a situation in which everybody in the world is fully employed and all factories are fully employed. That isn't the case. Therefore, I can deny that exports are a cost and imports are a benefit. Right. So, my, so my country, if I if I have everyone is is fully employed, but we can produce more, we produce more and we export it. Therefore, we have a balance of trade um, surplus, and that's a good thing. Whereas they're saying no, it's a bad thing because of the opportunity cost argument. And you're saying, well, yeah, no. and this is why this, this. I mean, if you look back and trying to find where this has come from, I believe it originates, and I've got to do this work before I write the next edition of Debunking. Obviously, uh, in Warren Mosler's book, uh, Seven uh, the Seven Innocent uh, Innocent Fraud, I think it's called, uh, and it's one of Warren's notions. I don't think it came from uh, Bill Mitchell or, or Andy Ray or any of the other of the uh, of the leading elements of modern monetary theory. Uh, and it's just something which I, I would have taken Warren aside and just kept on going until he could concede that opportunity cost was not a valid point to analyse macroeconomics. Uh, but no, that's that's where the idea came from. And I think in this case, I think they basically twisted their logic so that they don't have to take to take Warren on. You will see lots of caveats and very good ones, made by people like Stephanie Carlton at various points in this overall argument. But there seems to be an unwillingness to say, look, this is just not as sound by any means as the propositions Warren also is largely the modern uh, generator of that um, that government spends to tax, not vice versa. And I think sometimes you've got to say, look, one of your notions is extremely solid. That's the, that's the perspective on government taxes, if, if, if taxes exceed expenditure, then you're taking money out of private bank accounts. The, the, gov- the government surface is a private sector deficit by definition. Uh, and then waving, waving hands to say it doesn't matter when it comes to international trade. And I think that's wrong. Also, what about foreign currencies as well? So if, if the government is creating its money, its own money, to further its, its economy, it's still going to need to buy things. Unless you produce absolutely everything in your country, you're going to need to buy stuff in a foreign currency or convert it to a foreign currency. But let's say you, you buy it in a foreign currency. That means you've got to have an inflow of foreign money, haven't you, which which you wouldn't have if you had a trade deficit. Well, then what do you do? You get that inflow of foreign currency by selling selling assets. Yeah. And the argument the argument will made by modern monetary theory is that uh, what you're doing is there must be a, a trade deficit is not a sign that you're not producing enough. It's a sign the rest of the world wants to save in your currency. And, and therefore, what you're doing is, is satisfying that, that desire to save in your currency. And therefore, what you're doing is giving them uh, effectively pieces of paper in return for real goods and bang, there's, there's your benefit. It's all, it's all your benefit. So you're a third world economy which is heavily reliant on imports because you're not producing enough. You're telling me that that's, uh, that, that is happening not because you need to buy the stuff and uh, you'll pay whatever price. It's because those countries that are, that are shipping that stuff want your obscure African currency. They're, they're desperate for it. I mean, maybe the US dollar, but if we're talking about third world currency, surely that doesn't stack up. Yeah, and and this is why I think it, it does fall over, and and it's it, to me it is just well, again to to, um, to quote Bill Mitchell on this front. So on balance, if we can persuade foreigners to send us more ships and airplanes filled with things for us, we have to send them in return. That has to be a net benefit for us in real terms. And then says uh, the standard conception is exactly the opposite: that foreigners finance our profligate spending patterns. In fact, our trade deficit allows them to accumulate these financial assets, claims on us. We gain in real terms more packed ships full of coming in than leave, and they accumulate Australian dollars in the first instance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
Mm. I'm sorry, I just well, reject this. Well, it, it, the, logic, the logic of MMT extends to the international case, and if you, if you, uh, it's complicated to analyse, and I've, I've got to do this fully at one point in Minsky, my software package. But if, if ultimately, if you have an American company selling to an Australian company, then the uh, the American current com- country companies bank balance will increase in terms of American dollars. The Australian companies. Uh, accounts will fall in terms of Australian Australian dollars. You know, one, you know, there's a currency conversion issue going on there, uh, and that therefore has an impact just in the same sort of way, though very much more complicated, uh, as government running a deficit versus a surplus. So isn't there also the danger that, you know, you're just going to get a really bad exchange rate? If you've got a a, a, um, a deficit, a foreign exchange uh, deficit, you don't have enough foreign currency so you need to buy stuff in your currency and convert it and you're um and you're having to buy a lot then the international money markets are going to go well you you really need to convert that money we're going to you know give you a really bad exchange rate you're going to see your currency the value of your currency decrease which is not only going to make it more expensive for your imports it means it's going to be you know you're going to create inflation domestically as well for which the government might say well, so people can afford to buy our own stuff, domestic stuff. We're going to have to print more money, and then that sort of creates more inflation. You start to get this downward spiral, don't you? Which has been driven by the devaluation of your currency because you're because um, you don't have the the buying power on international money markets. Yeah, and this and, and this and this is something where I think the, the, the extent to which MMT developed in America has made it America centric, and the fact that America is the only country yeah. that can't run out of the currency used for international trade because it is is the currency used for international trade. Uh, whereas you have countries which, like in Turkey's case, are running at one stage about a twenty percent of GDP government deficit and a very large uh, trade deficit as well. Ultimately, at some point, people they've got to issue bonds denominated in American dollars to get American dollars to buy those goods they're not producing domestically. And at some stage, bang, they, even with the floating exchange rate, there's a run on your currency. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a belief to some extent, and this is another area that I think it's over, overblown, in that foreign that, that uh, floating exchange rates will the, the, the problems we're talking about are really problems of fixed exchange rates and if you have floating exchange rate that solves the problem no it doesn't and hasn't mm. uh, there, there have been numerous instances of currency runs uh, when in the period of floating exchange rates with the most extreme of uh, in, in terms of the scale that happened on was the Asian financial crisis in 97 98 and you had a in Indonesia's case I think in one week, the, the uh, repair devalued by a factor of five or seven, and uh, and, and and that was just because you know we we know what was happening with Indonesian money. It was being pocketed by the Indonesian elite. Um, it wasn't going into development at all. Uh, it financed a, a nice old bubble until it came crashing down, and floating exchange rates didn't help. Well, I get a bit confused by Bill Mitchell on this, and I apologise, Bill, if you're listening to this, and I've quoted you out of context, but he says if you're running a large current account deficit and this sort of thing's happening, then the, the result of it would be that you would simply reduce your reliance on imports. And yet, you know, earlier on he was saying imports were a good thing and exports were a bad thing, so I'm confused here now. Yeah, and I, th- I think that it is a point where I see a contradiction in their logic. It's um, the arguments of MMT that I think are completely well-founded are the ones that, which are applied in terms of public sector surplus and private sector deficit. And I can you know, I can easily simulate that in Minsky and make, make the case very well that the government running a deficit uh, surplus actually ends up 
uh, reducing GDP so much that you get an increase in the government debt to GDP ratio. And paradoxically, it might appear uh, when I simulate this again with very, very simple model, if the government runs a, a, a deficit, its debt to GDP ratio falls. But so yeah, uh, you know, but doesn't is, but as a closed system, you've been looking at that as a doesn't it doesn't all of this blow the whole premise of MMT out of the water? It's a nice idea, but only you know if you exist on a on a desert island no, no, without any contact with other currencies, and you don't need any foreign currencies to uh, in your system. No, I think it's a valid idea, which they have to revise their thinking about the international trade aspects thereof. And this is what I think, uh, the, 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 you know, the, what is the old saying that friends won't let friends drive drunk? I mm. think in this in the economic case, friends won't let friends come up with arguments with the nonsense. And uh, I think the, in, in this case, there's elements, the, the MLS terms here, which are very strong, are the ones about the, the government's role in, in domestic spending and so on. The international trade stuff, I think, come on and go back and write it again because you've started from the wrong foundation of opportunity cost and the idea of exports as a cost and imports as a benefit. It's, it's just the, it is a different foundation to the foundation they use for analysing the domestic economy. And I'm saying they've got a good foundation the domestic economy. They should extend it to international as well. But how do you, irrespective of how you look at it, Forget about modern monetary theory and their theories. In your mind, how do you get over the issue that if you uh, create a lot of money, uh, the government creates a lot of money through bonds, there's a danger that they will devalue their currency, which is going to make imports expensive, which is going to push inflation up, which is making goods expensive as well, uh, to which the only way domestic goods expensive as well, to which the only way then is to, is to print more money and then you get that downward spiral and you get hyperinflation, you know, you get starvation and all that sort of thing. Well, you get hyperinflation where there's got to be destruction of resources as well. But, but fundamentally, yes, those are serious issues. And, mm. and what it means is that you, the, the, if, if you look at the, the, the balances that are obsessed by on different economic theories, mainstream economists, neoclassicals, politicians and a lot of journalists obsess about the government balance and think that should be, uh, the government should be either in balance or surplus. And that's what the mistake that MMT points out, um, that the private sector can't run a surplus unless the government's running a deficit when you're working in a closed economy. When you open it up, you've got, you, you have a third balance, not just the private sector balance, not the government sector balance. You have your trade balance, your, your balance of payments. Uh, and I think that is the most important one for a country to keep a good watch on. Mm. And I have to say, I've got a good ally in this. His name is John Maynard. Because if you look at Keynes's arguments over the Bretton Woods Agreement, what he was trying to do was limit the scale of trade deficits and trade surpluses. I be- remember, I've got to look it up again to be sure, but his t- I think his target was no more than 2%. So his idea was to eliminate trade deficits and trade surpluses, if at all possible, and the countries running trade surpluses uh, which countries like Germany, Japan, China and so on now, he wanted to put rules in the Bretton Woods uh, system uh, that would mean that they were, either, they, they were either taxed on the surplus they were running past a certain point and the tax was used to boost spending in third world countries which are running deficits uh, or to um, actually force them to revalue their currency. So uh, the idea was that uh, countries running a trade surplus are actually depressing aggregate demand on a global scale and Keynes wanted to prevent that. Um, so that's what I would do. I'd say it can't be done just by an individual domestic economy. You have to have rules that, that limit the extent to which trade surpluses are accumulated and force those running trade surpluses to spend more. Uh, and what we have instead is a system of floating exchange rates. Now, 
the neoclassical sold floating exchange rates, and certainly Milton Friedman did, on the argument that those floating exchange rates would eliminate trade deficits because the price would adjust, not the volume. Uh, the, the, the reality is we have countries like Germany, Japan, China, Korea, uh, Switzerland, uh, Norway, running trade surpluses approaching 10% of GDP. And of course, that therefore means that, that that means equivalent deficits elsewhere in the world. Now, the modern monetary theory argument pretty much waves, waves hands and says, don't need to worry about that. The, in fact, the surplus ones are shooting themselves in the foot. Oh, yeah. It's nonsense. They're accumulating, getting their money, they're outsourcing the money creation to countries running deficits. Yeah, yeah. Okay, a fundamental rethink about it, but then, no, yeah, you know, effectively, if you're if you're and this comes down to the, the German case in particular, if your economy is running a trade surplus, then ultimately that trade surplus is forcing the hand of the central bank because the central bank has to convert for this recipient country companies, the companies that are you know generating that surplus, uh, forces the hand to put extra euros inside those companies' accounts. And on the other side, the country's buying those goods. Uh, it, it's it's forcing the, the central bank to, you know, or the, the, the banks themselves, to go and borrow money offshore in another currency. So you've actually, whatever the circularity, whatever the mechanisms involved, ultimately the country running a surplus has private sector bank accounts, which are increasing the amount of private the, the, the domestic currency. The other ones are falling. Mm. And and if that is the case, then you need less government money to to meet that aggregate level of of, of money yeah. in your in your country. And so you look at Germany, and I, could, I know Germany's falling into recession now. We should actually talk about this next time around too, mate. The mm. uh, the, the, the global recession, uh, not the, global, the continental level of uh, mm. recession going on in Europe right now, uh, which is an important commentary on the whole uh, European uh, European venture. But yeah, those those countries. Um, that like Germany that are running a huge trade surplus are simultaneously paying down government debt and paying down private sector debt. Yeah. It's the only but the only country in the world that's doing both at the same time. It can do that because it's running a trade surplus of the order of ten percent of GDP. Now in the aggregate, what they're doing is depressing the economy despite that, by the level of austerity the government's imposing, and the private sector is spending less because they don't want to get into debt. Uh, they're, they're partly the German attitude, but partly the response to the government austerity as well. And what you've got is a recession in a country running a trade surplus. Um, uh, so, you know, you, you can you can, you can can stuff it up even when you're doing, in, in my point of view, uh, the right thing uh, in a competitive sense of trying to run a surplus because you effectively outsource your money creation to somebody else. You can still stuff it up domestically. The Germans have achieved that. But, uh, you know, again, I think modern monetary theory is, 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 is a diametrically wrong guide on the foreign trade issue. Right. Okay. Apart from that, fundamentally, it's all right. <laughs> Apart from that rather fundamental disagreement, which I still wonder whether it sort of blows the whole premise out of the water. But look, we'll, we'll revisit this. But I love the continuity of the fact that we will talk about the recession next time, whether it's <laughs> just whether it is just Europe or, I mean, you know, we can throw other countries in. I'm, I'm sure Australia's going to be included, could be lumped into all of that as well. So we'll look at the next, the next recession and just how global it is next time on the Debunking Economics podcast. Thanks, Steve. That sounds like it'll be fun too. <laughs> fun. Uh, yeah, not sure that's the word, but for a recession. Uh, but illuminating, perhaps, uh, we'll ha- have a full discussion, a frank discussion, as always, next time on the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Professor Steve Keen. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.